became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Pastor Rick Stevens, and I want to welcome you to Faith Is, where we stretch and grow and learn to develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And that verse from John chapter 1, verse 14 is one of my favorites for this time of year. Maybe it's one of yours. It's familiar. And it reminds me of so many things. There is so much in that simple, elegant description of the coming of Jesus. It's no wonder it resonates with us. I suppose if you wanted to have a one-sentence sermon, that would be one of the best. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And as we get into the program this morning, I want to encourage you to think about that idea of truth. Now, there's a lot of things in that verse. We all recognize that, but, but notice it says full of grace and truth. And it seems to me that we live in a world surrounded by lies. It seems that lies threaten to engulf us, threaten to overwhelm us. Everywhere we turn, we can't be sure if we're getting the truth from the people who want to tell us what's happening, tell us what to think about, and even sometimes tell us how to think. It seems that we live in a world that's dominated by narratives, but we need to seek and find the truth. We don't need a narrative. We don't need a story that somebody tells us. We need to know what is the truth. In writing to Timothy, the Apostle Paul said, you're going to find that there will be times when people will have no stomach for solid teaching, but will fill up on spiritual junk food, catchy opinions that tickle their fancy. They'll turn their backs on truth and chase mirages. But you, keep your eye on what you're doing. Accept the hard times along with the good. Keep the message alive. Do a thorough job as God's servant. And that's from 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 5, or 3 through 5, from the message. Keep your eye on what you're doing. Accept the hard times along with the good. Keep the message alive. Do a thorough job as God's servant. And part of doing a thorough job is to make sure that we concentrate on that which is true. And I think that that's as important these days as it's ever been in my lifetime. You may have heard the name Everett Piper. He was a one-time college president, now retired. And he has a, a saying that he uses quite frequently. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. I think he's right. We need to push back against that which is deceptive and that which is not true. We need to hold to the truth. As for John chapter 1, verse 14 says, that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And you see, that's a benefit to us because Jesus also said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, really, it's, it's no small thing to say that truth is God's gift to us because he tells us the truth. And truth is the church's gift to the world, because we are the people that God uses to tell the truth. And we need to remember to focus on that which is true and right and good. So that's what we do on this program. We focus on the truth, and 
and we try to understand things in a, in a way that helps us move forward. It helps us have confidence in God. And we've been focusing on some things during this season, and we're going to talk about that some more today as well. As you may know, I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. I do a weekly church service like everybody else does. We're just regular people like you, trying to seek and find the truth and do what God has called us to do. I want to thank my church for their investment in this time we have together, for their support of that, and for helping all of us think about that which is true. And of special note, I think you should know this about our church. And I've said this to, to people that they need to make sure this is true in their church as well. But at our church, I have every confidence that when I speak to the people on Sunday morning, they expect me to tell the truth as God has helped me understand it from the Bible. They don't want me to hold back. They don't want me to tell them what they want to hear. Or as Second Timothy said, what I read, they don't want spiritual junk food or catchy opinions that tickle their fancy. They want to know what is God saying to us in these days. And you know, they should be commended for that because there are churches that don't want to hear that. They want to hear what they want to hear, and they put pressure on their pastor to be careful what he talks about and what he says about various issues. And our church has a conviction that we all share that we want to hear from God, what he has to say to us so that we can know that which is true and we can follow it because as Jesus said, it's the truth that will set you free. What he meant by that was he embodies the truth and he tells us the truth and we will not find freedom as people without following the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. So as we talk about these things on the program today, I want you to realize we're going to stretch ourselves in, in some ways that may be a little uncomfortable to a few of us. I don't think it will be too uncomfortable. It might be new information to us, but it will stretch our understanding and help us get a grasp of what God is up to in our world. And I think that's really important, and that's why we're doing these kind of things, is to make sure that we do get that sense of what God is up to in our world. And to begin, I want to take us back to the times when I was a kid. I was quite young, and uh, I don't remember how old I was. I probably was uh, fifth or sixth grade, not certain, but I was really quite fascinated because the pastor announced of my church, and I was lived in Ohio growing up as a kid, just outside Cincinnati, and the pastor of the church announced that he and another man from the church were going on a trip to the Holy Land. Now, they, today we usually refer to the place where Jesus ministered and walked and taught as Israel. In those days, we called it the Holy Land. Uh, I'm not sure why the times have changed, why we use different names. Sometimes we still call it Holy Land, but he was going and they regularly use that term. And I was quite fascinated by that because I'd heard the Bible stories and I understood many of them and wondered what was going on. And, and I thought, well, this ought to be really interesting to hear what they have to say. And, and they said to us that they would come back and show us the pictures that they took. In those days, it was slide photography using film. And so they had to be developed. And then they had a slide show program and they did all those kind of things. And one of the things that they said before they left and I think, and I can't remember for sure, I think they were going to be gone three Sundays in a row. And I remember the pastor saying to all of us kids that if you are in church all three Sundays while I'm in the Holy Land, I'm going to bring you a special prize, something that you can have from the Holy Land. Well, that got my attention. I thought that was really cool. And as a, as a kid, I couldn't imagine hardly anybody going to the Holy Land. I uh, never could have imagined myself going. 
but I was really excited that they were going and I wanted to see what they would bring back from the Holy Land. And so I remember when they came back and and sure enough, they brought back and what I got. And I don't remember if all the kids got the same thing. It may have may not. But I got a small camel that had been carved out of olive wood. And I was really fascinated by that. I, I kept that camel forever. I, I may have still have it someplace. I, I don't know. But I really found that as a valued thing, a connection to the to the Holy Land that that was given to me by people who had been there a couple of men that I knew that had been there. That was really significant to me. But I also remember some of their pictures. And I don't remember many of them, but I remember one distinctly. And I've always remembered it. And I have that picture in my mind. It was the picture of the place historically identified, um, probably not accurately, but we'll talk about that today. But the place that tradition decided or some people decided we needed a site. And so they identified this site in Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus. And you can see the pictures and it, it looks a little interesting because of the stories we've been told about a stable and all those kind of things. And it didn't look like that, but I can distinctly remember the, the very impressive and, and striking picture of that place in Israel where they said, tradition said, Jesus was born. Well, fast forward a number of years, and really to my surprise, and I still don't remember what caused me to do it, but, but I did, I decided I would go on a tour, a trip. The tour leader actually called it a pilgrimage because he wanted it to, to be more than sightseeing. He wanted it to have spiritual significance, and it really did. But I remember going on a trip to the Holy Land, and I remember wondering what I would see, thinking that probably I didn't know enough about the whole geography of the place to get much out of it. But still, I wanted to go, and I wasn't reluctant to go. I wasn't afraid to go. There's always this kind of, um, well, what's going to happen? Because we hear of so many things in the Middle East, and and yet I I was excited. I I I was not at all concerned about any of that. I was just excited. I couldn't sleep all night on the flight to, to Israel. Uh, I was just excited to, to be there, to be going and eager to see what was going on. So, so we had a great trip, saw a lot of things, uh, experienced a lot of things, was amazed by many things. And one day, and I wasn't sure until we got there on the trip, because the, the advanced information was a little vague about it and not certain we'd be able to visit Bethlehem. But it turned out one of the days on the trip, we were able to get on the bus and go from, I think it was from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Well, that was quite an interesting um, adventure, you'd say, because we, we left uh, together on the bus and, and on the way we had to, to pass through a checkpoint, a military checkpoint. Well, I'd seen the news and I'd seen pictures and, and I knew a little bit about what that was. And so I was quite interested. I looked out the window, see what was going on. And, and lo and behold, a couple of soldiers got on the bus um, full, full dress, full battle dress, carrying their weapons and everything and walked down the aisle, looking at all of us. And I didn't quite know what to think about all of that, but we were going to Bethlehem. That's okay. I wasn't going to worry about it. And sure enough, we get to Bethlehem and we get off the bus and we walk up the hill toward the church of the nativity. Now it was an interesting thing. Cause I'd seen pictures of the church of the nativity and years later I'd seen, um, uh, I guess probably from Christmas Eve when they broadcast the, 
the services there at, at the Church of the Nativity. And I had remembered seeing there were some um, uh, occupiers once that, that took over the church. And so there was some news photography related to that. And so we walked up the hill and through the courtyard and into the Church of the Nativity. It wasn't a huge building, but it was, it was the place. And I walked in and I looked around and, I, and, and it felt like I had been there in some respect. I hadn't been, but it was only because I had seen pictures of the inside of the church. And so it, it did seem familiar as I walked in and looked around. It wasn't, as I recall, particularly impressive, uh, as impressive things go. It was impressive because it was the Church of the Nativity, but it wasn't particularly striking visually. And we walked in and, and looked around, and then we went toward the front where there was a doorway, and that, that led downstairs. And I didn't really realize this until we got there, but then we went down some stairs, and, and on that next level, there was the place. And as soon as I saw it, I remembered, wow, that's what I saw from the pictures of my pastor who, uh, that he showed at our church when I was a kid. And it was exactly the place. And I could stand, and I remember standing in, in the exact place where I could look at the, at the location where tradition tells us Jesus was born. And, and I could remember that picture, and I was seeing with my own eyes what I had only seen before in a picture. It was just really striking. I looked around, it was a small area and, and tried to take it all in. Of course, you can't take it all in, but you do the best you can. And that was, that was a, a, a really significant part of that trip to Israel, to go to that location and to see what I had only seen in pictures or on television from broadcasts of services or news reports. Well, that takes us to, to a consideration today of where was Jesus born? Now, when you look into why the Church of the Nativity was built there and why that location was chosen, it's, it doesn't seem to be chosen because anybody knew for certain that that was the place. It seemed to be they needed a place. Some of the history had been lost by that time, and, and someone decided that was the place they were going to set aside as the birthplace of Jesus. And that was fine. There's nothing wrong with that. i I'm not upset by that. You're not upset by that. But we do understand that there's some question about the where, and it may not have been there. In fact, as we're going to talk today, it probably wasn't at that site. Doesn't take anything away from that site or my enjoyment of being there. It was great. It's just like last week when we talked about when was Jesus born. Was he born on December 25th? And all of the evidence points to the reality that he wasn't born in December, likely born in September. December was chosen for other reasons, and it, it's worked out fine. And I said then, and I continue to say, there's no reason for us to change our celebration of the birth of Jesus as, on December 25th. It, it's just fine. It works really well for us. It tells the story of Jesus. In fact, over the years, the church has used that as the beginning point to tell the story of Jesus and, and the various events in the life of Jesus, his baptism, then all the way through to what we call Holy Week and resurrection, and then beyond to ascension, and then the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So we tell that story every year using what we have to work with, and that's, that's all well and good. I, I don't think there's any problem with that. I don't, I don't see any reason to change that. So don't, don't, don't uh, how should I say, react to that. Don't get upset by that. I, I understand one person who heard me talk about that last week at church was kind of uh, disillusioned by that, and I don't mean to disillusion anybody. 
I mean for us to think carefully about these things so that we can distinguish that which might be the tradition versus what, when we study it more carefully, turns out to be the real true story behind it and, and the connections that God has given us for that. So we're trying to focus on that which is true and right, because as, as Christians, we want to know the truth and we want to, to, to tell people the truth. So that's, that's the reason for looking at the when, and also the reason today to look at the where, because be, the way that site was selected there at the Church of the Nativity really indicates that it, that it probably wasn't the place. And so we want to think about and talk through some of the ideas of where, where Jesus really was born, and, and why would that matter? Why is that significant? So to begin, let's go to the scriptures, and in Micah chapter 5, one of the really important verses that talks about the coming of Jesus and helps us locate his birthplace is Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It's a, it's a section of, of the scriptures that deal with the prediction, the prophecy, the promise of Jesus' coming. And it says in, in the NIV, it says this quite simply, but you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, you've probably heard that if you've been around church during this time of the year. It's one of those familiar verses because it talks about coming from Bethlehem. Now, Micah uses this very interesting description, Bethlehem Ephratah. And as best I've been able to determine, we're not quite sure what that word Ephratah is about. We, we're not sure if it's a, an alternate name for Bethlehem, so that there were two names for the place, or, or perhaps it was a region, an area. So it referred to Bethlehem and, and that region around Bethlehem. Uh, just a certain amount of uncertainty with that. But it got me to thinking, you know, there's a certain amount of uncertainty with the way we talk about places too. Uh, for example, I live in Cape Coral, Florida. You may not know where Cape Coral is, but if I were to tell you it's in Southwest Florida, that would give you a little bit better idea because you could picture in your mind the peninsula of Florida, and you could tell if you go south and west, then you would have a little better idea of where I live because I live in what we call Southwest Florida. Well, Southwest Florida is a pretty big geographical region. Cape Coral is only one city in Southwest Florida. It's the biggest city in Southwest Florida, for sure, by geography. I'm not sure about population these days. That fluctuates, but we have a lot of people in Cape Coral and a huge geography. We have more canals in Cape Coral than they have in Venice, Italy. So it's, it's an interesting place. It's a big place. But Southwest Florida is not just Cape Coral. And Southwest Florida is not just Fort Myers, the city across the river from us. It's not just Naples, the city that's south of us. It's not Punta Gorda or Port Charlotte, cities north of us. But this whole region up and down the west coast of Florida, from about Port Charlotte, I guess you'd say, to Naples, we'd call Southwest Florida. Now, there are things south of Naples that probably are included in Southwest Florida, but when we think of it, that tends to be the way we think of it, not, or at least the way I think about it. I've only been here uh, almost 25 years, so I'm not really an old timer in terms of how people have always thought of it, but this is the way that I see us using the term Southwest Florida. So if I were to talk to someone and they were to ask me where I live, 
I would often say to them, well, I live in Cape Coral. And they would look at me like so many people do it. They've never heard of Cape Coral. Well, I understand that it's not that well known of a city, even though it is the second or third largest city geographically in the state of Florida, people just haven't heard about it. And that's okay. So, so I would likely say to them something about the area. So I sometimes would say to them, well, Cape Coral is um, north of Naples and it's south of Sarasota, kind of in between the two. Sometimes that helps. Sometimes I might say, well, it's in Southwest Florida. It's on the West coast of Florida. And sometimes people will by then begin to say that, yeah, they have an idea where that is. Now they couldn't find where I live from that description, but they would have an idea where I live because it reflects the region. So when when Micah says Bethlehem Ephratah, he might very well be talking about more than a discrete city with specific boundaries. He might have been talking about a wider region. So in Southwest Florida, we might say if we live in Cape Coral that we're going to go over to Fort Myers to run an errand. Now, we would say we're going to Fort Myers, but we use that term pretty loosely. We might be going to a place that's in the city limits of Fort Myers, but we might not. We might be going to South Fort Myers, which is outside the city limits, or maybe we're going east of the city proper, but we would still refer to it as Fort Myers. So when we think about the way the Bible uses those descriptions, we need to give that the same consideration as the way we think about them. So that's not to, that's, that's not to uh, dodge being specific. That's just simply to recognize that we get interesting clues from the scriptures that we need to take and allow them to speak to us on their level, on the basis of what they have to say. So in this passage in Micah, if you go to chapter four, we get a little more information about this whole idea, and it helps us think about that better if we think about the way we commonly refer to places. Another example, I talked to a, a, a lady who came to church on Sunday, and she said she was going to visit relatives in Fort Worth, Texas. Well, that was interesting. We were, we were curious and she told us it's Fort Worth, but then she said, well, it's not exactly Fort Worth. It's a, and she named the town I've never heard of and can't remember now, but that's the way we use things. So we get a little tantalizing clue from chapter four of Micah about this whole idea of the region. So in chapter four, verse eight, the new international version has it this way. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. Now, that's very interesting, and the Bible does speak in poetic language, and this is rather poetic, and we, we look at that and we say, now, what in the world are they talking about here? Well, there are a couple of references to places in here. There's a place described as watchtower of the flock. There's a place described as stronghold of daughter Zion. It's talking about the former dominion will be restored to you. So there must have been some, some dominion, to use this word, that took place in this area. And it talks about a kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. So all those kind of poetic clues help us think about what's he talking about. And remember, this is all in the section that speaks to the promise that God is going to send Messiah, the birth of Jesus. So let's unpack that a little bit and see. Now, he says stronghold of daughter Zion, and that's language that refers to the city of David, which is just north of Bethlehem, but also in this region. 
north of Bethlehem, a little bit south of, of what we call Jerusalem today, there's a separate area called the city of David. And so this likely refers to that area. Of course, it definitely mentions daughter Jerusalem, so it mentions that area. So we get the sense that this is a, a bit of a regional uh, reference going on here in verse 8 of chapter 4. But it says one very specific place that, that we know existed. There probably is still some question about exactly where it is, but we have a good idea of it. But it's described as watchtower of the flock. Or when that particular language is transliterated, we refer to it as Migdal Eder. Or you might hear it called Migdal Eder or Migdal Eder. There's different pronunciations, and I can never tell which one's going to come out when I pronounce it. So this might be an adventure. You might catch me pronouncing it several ways. But remember, when in doubt, just pronounce it like you know what it is, and everybody will believe you've got it right. So we're, we're looking at Micah chapter 4, verse 8. And it's real interesting to hear him say, as for you, watchtower of the flock. And then he refers to how the former dominion will be restored to you. So that which was characterized by kingship, also mentioned in that verse, will once again arrive some kind of dominion, some kind of kingship. So when we think about that and we see the reference to daughter of Zion, the stronghold of daughter of Zion, and we recognize that's a reference to the city of David, all of a sudden we remember, wait a minute, the former dominion that is so highly prized by God's people was the rule and reign of King David. His was the pinnacle of their time. His kingdom was the model kingdom. They never did better under any king than David, and so he's highly revered. Uh, I understand, and I haven't been to Israel that much, but I heard another man who who I respect a lot, talking about his trips to Israel. He's made many. And he says, uh, there's nobody bigger in Israel than David because of the reference to that historical time and that great kingdom, that great reign of, of King David. And he said, David is everywhere, and he's revered everywhere. And he said, you can even go into McDonald's and get a McDavid burger. Well, I'd never heard of that before. That struck me as kind of odd. We didn't go to McDonald's when I was in Israel. But I thought that was really emblematic of how significant, very significant, David's rule and David's reign was in Israel at that time. And so here in this verse, it's referring to this former dominion, and there was no dominion stronger than David, and it says it will be restored to you. And it refers to this location, this location, it will become back to you, and you will find that kingdom there. And so we get this very strong clue that this watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion. The former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. That something is going on in this location that's outside of Jerusalem, but also described as watchtower of the flock or Migdal Eder. Migdal Eder. Migdal Eder. You choose. Well, that place is mentioned other times in Scripture with other references going back, including Jacob and some of the things that took place earlier. We don't need to get into all of that. But we know it was a discrete place because we know it's identified in other ways. Now, why they choose in the NIV here to call it Watchtower of the Flock, I don't know. But we do know that, that if you transliterate the words there, it's Migdal Eder. And so that's, that's quite clear. So what we want to do now 
is continue to follow the evidence that the Bible has. And here's the intriguing stuff. There's something happened in this area called Bethlehem Ephratah, something that's described quite vividly by Micah as restoring the former dominion. And what could restore the former dominion more than the coming of Messiah? What could be more significant than a kingdom that would be restored to this area? Because they would have known, we know, that David was connected to this, and it was his dominion that was the peak of the times. So somewhere in this area, something significant is going to happen. Now, the other thing we should make sure before we take a break, which we'll do in just a, just a bit, when it refers to watchtower of the flock, they really did have watchtowers, towers that were built so that they could go up to the top of the tower and see the flock as the flock grazed around that area. So this was a discrete place that was built called Migdal Eder. It was a watchtower so that they could climb up in, it, in that tower and watch the flocks of sheep, keep an eye on them, look out for their well-being. It was a convenience to the shepherds, made it much easier to see what's going on. And it was a discrete place that something is about to happen because Micah points to that and reminds us. We don't look at chapter four very often. It's not nearly as um, well-known as the other ones, but it's a real place. It's real significant. And we're going to look at why Migdal Eder makes so much difference in the life of God's people. And we're going to come to a much better, deeper understanding of how God sent his son to deliver us from evil, to save his people from their sins. We'll be right back. You stay with us. Healthy Cell makes a wonderful line of products, and I want to spend just a minute with you on REM sleep. Do you know Healthy Cell's product has calming herbs, amino acids, minerals, and sleep hormone support for the four-stage human sleep cycle? Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and achieve REM or rapid eye movement sleep. Through the phases, fall asleep easily. That component of sleep is favorably impacted by melatonin, lemon balm extract, and GABA, lowering the body temperature. That element is influenced by glycine, magnesium, and calcium. Deep lasting sleep, L-theanine, vitamin D3, and vitamin B6. And finally, creativity boosting REM sleep, 5-HTP, vitamin B6, and GABA. Many of us think we need to sleep because we're short on sleep, but we need quality sleep. So please consider Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement. I have one tonight and I'm going to have a much better night's sleep if I uh, compare to if not taking it. So go to uh, HealthyCell.com and in the promo box, uh, type in out loud and that'll give you a 20% uh, discount off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. AmericaOutloud.com Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea, you can listen in on iHeartRadio. Our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa, or our world-class media player. 
America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. And we've been talking today about how to stretch our understanding of the Christmas story and of the location of where Jesus was born. And we've talked about the idea that it's clearly the region around Bethlehem somewhere. We don't have any reason to think that it was necessarily in a city defined as Bethlehem. And there's even some uncertainty about the exact location of Bethlehem in those days. But we do know this is the area, and we have some other clues that help us understand where Jesus was likely born. And you can make up your own mind. I don't know that anybody is prepared to say with certainty that any site is the exact site, but this stuff that people are talking about these days, this evidence is really compelling and really insightful, and and we really can't ignore it. So let's keep plunging ahead. We've talked about how Micah identified this region and how in Micah chapter four, verse eight, there was a specific watchtower identified, watchtower of the flock, and that tower, that watchtower was built to keep an eye on the herd so the shepherds could could see them clearly. And there's a real intriguing bit of evidence from Genesis that helps us even more and, and really raises our interest around this idea of Migdaletter or the watchtower of the flock. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with with a translation of the Bible called the Targum. We don't talk about it much. It doesn't get a lot of our attention. But the Targum was a translation that translated the Hebrew into Aramaic to make it more accessible to people. It's what we do today when we translate it into English to make it more accessible to people. It's nothing really more mysterious than that. But there's really quite a fascinating translation of Genesis chapter 35, verse 23. And it's not reflected in our English translations that I could find. No, I didn't search all of them. And and maybe if you find it, then you've got one up on me. But in the Targum paraphrase, when we look at that and we take that translation from Hebrew to Aramaic and then into English, it reads like this. And Jacob proceeded and spread his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Okay, so that's referring to Jacob. You remember Jacob and Esau, that's Jacob from the from the scriptures. And he was in that region for a number of reasons, and, and we don't need to get into that, but you can read Genesis chapter 35 and understand that better. And Jacob proceeded and spread his tent beyond the Tower of Eder, the place from whence it is to be, the King Messiah will be revealed at the end of days. Now, think about that and let that sink in. And Jacob proceeded and spread his tent beyond the Tower of Eder, the place from whence it is to be revealed, or from whence it is to be, the King Messiah will be revealed at the end of the days. So in Genesis chapter 35, verse 23, it refers to the watchtower of the flock, Migdol Eder, and the same location that Micah is referencing the same location that's in the region of Bethlehem. And from the historical information we have, this watchtower was along the road between Bethlehem and Jerusalem 
just a little bit north of where we understand Bethlehem to be now. So it was clearly in that region. Remember, we talked about how we speak in regional terms sometimes. And so that intriguing evidence from Genesis, from Micah, begins to help us understand something was going on in this region. Of course, we also have information from Luke and the story of, of Christmas, what we refer to the story of the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. We'll get to that. Let's, let's pause for a minute and think about the shepherds. The shepherds played a key role in the, in the Christmas story. We're aware of that. We'll get into that a little bit more. But we need to recognize that these shepherds that played a key role were not your garden variety shepherds. Now, that's not to, to be disrespectful of shepherds. It's just to recognize that, that shepherds were regular folks. There are some people that say, and I heard a guy say that, that in those days, mothers didn't want their sons to grow up to be shepherds because it wasn't a very honorable or significant occupation. Well, that may be, but these shepherds were the special shepherds. These were the, the top ranking, you might say, shepherds, because the shepherds that were reflected in the Christmas story and that kept watch in this area around Bethlehem near the watchtower of the flock, Migdal Eider, they were special shepherds because they were there specially appointed by the priests from the temple in Jerusalem. So they worked under the authority of the priests. They were trained by the priests for this duty because they needed to be able to examine lambs when they were born for sacrifice, because these shepherds were the ones that took care of the herds that provided the sacrificial animals for the temple in Jerusalem. So these shepherds were special. They were not just regular shepherds. They were special shepherds. I, I don't know any better way to say it than that, because they had a higher level of responsibility. They had to select the lambs and learn how to identify the lambs that would be appropriate for sacrifice in the temple. So you kind of have the scene set. We're kind of intrigued by this watchtower of the flock. We're kind of intrigued by these shepherds being special. And so let's now skip ahead to Genesis and the actual story that we read in Luke chapter 2. Let's just plunge in with Luke chapter 2, verse 1. I'm reading from the New International Version. Very familiar story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out of the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So the shepherds were those who were caring for the special sacrificial flocks. They're surprised at night by word from the angel. And then the angel gives them an address where they're going to go and find the baby that they just announced, that a child has been born in the town of David, the Messiah. That's pretty big news. So how are they going to find the address to find the baby? Well, a lot has been said and a lot is said about no room in the inn and how Mary and Joseph ended up in a place that we often describe as a stable. But let's go from the shepherd's point of view and let's see how did they know where to find the baby? You know, there's no evidence in Luke chapter two that they wondered or had trouble finding him. Now, I don't know why Luke tells the story, and I don't know all those details. We can't know them, but we do know they had no trouble finding the baby. We also know that the angel didn't tell them to go to Bethlehem. They said, let's go to Bethlehem. Well, okay, so that they went to that region. Where were they? We don't know exactly where the shepherds were. Were they out a couple of miles from Bethlehem? Were they out north of Migdaletter? And so they would have had to go by it on the way to Bethlehem. We just don't know for sure. But we do know that the angel gave them the address, so to speak. Because remember, the angel said, this will be a sign to you. Okay, here's how you'll know you find the baby. Here's how you'll know that this is Messiah that we're talking about. And, and the angel said two things. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths. That's one. And secondly, lying in a manger. Now, lying in a manger is not too hard for us to, to figure out. This would have been a, a, an easy guess for the shepherds. That would have been some kind of a feeding trough. And so that wouldn't be hard. So they would be looking at a place where there was a stable of some kind, because that was one of the clues that the angel gave them. Now, the other one is really quite tantalizing, because it appears that the shepherds knew exactly where to go when they heard the angel say that the baby would be wrapped in claws. Now, older translations, this NIV does not do that, but older translations talk about it being swaddling claws and lying in a manger. So there are two connected clues there. Manger, we understand, feeding trough could serve easily as a bed for a baby. We can imagine that. But what about the wrapped in claws or swaddling clothes, as, as the King James, I think the new King James uses that term as well. Well, remember, the shepherds were those who took care of the sacrificial flocks, the flocks raised to be sacrificed. And they would know that there was a place that they would take the, the, the ewes that were about to give birth into a birthing area where they could care for the lambs that were born because they needed lambs that were perfect for sacrifice. So they had to take care that they were born in a place where they'd be sheltered and not damaged, not harmed, in any way. So 
the place that this likely took took place, the, the birthing stable, was in this watchtower of the flock. By all of the historical evidence, it points to that. And so the shepherds would have recognized that, that the lambs were wrapped in cloths because when the lambs were born, they had a tendency to thrash about. And in order to keep them from hurting themselves or to be damaged so that they were not able to be used for sacrifice, they would wrap them in these swaddling cloths and they would lie them in a manger or lay them in a manger so that they would be protected and they wouldn't hurt themselves because if they were perfect, they could be used for sacrifice and they needed to be perfect. So when the shepherds heard the angels talk about wrapped in claws or wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger, they would have immediately made a connection between what they knew took place in terms of the birth of lambs for sacrifice. And they would have connected that to Jesus being taken care of in exactly the same way. So it wouldn't surprise me, and I realize it doesn't say that exactly, but it wouldn't surprise me, and much evidence points to that they would have gone immediately to Migdaletter, to the watchtower of the flock, and found Jesus, because the angel gave them clues that were exactly in line with the things that they knew, that exactly fit the care that was necessary for the birth of a lamb that had to be very carefully taken care of so that lamb was perfect and ready for sacrifice at the temple. And so they swaddled those lambs so they wouldn't thrash about and hurt themselves. It would also keep them warm, help them thrive, and they would lie them down, lay them down in a manger so that they would be well taken care of. So when this is described to them by the angel that they would find Messiah taken care of in exactly that same way, it's an easy conclusion to realize that the shepherds would have made that connection. Now, why they said Bethlehem, I don't know. But remember, in, in Micah, it says Bethlehem Ephratah, referring to the region. And Micah also said that Messiah would come to the watchtower of the flock. So it's not at all difficult to imagine that these shepherds would have understood what was going on there and would have made their way to find the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world there in the place where lambs were raised, cared for, prepared for sacrifice at the temple to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. So you can begin to see the connection real quick. Now, does that upset me because it's not the place in the Church of the Nativity? No, not at all. In fact, it it rivets me to the idea that think about what God has done. He's gone to such great extent to help us understand and to recognize what's going on here, to connect our understanding of the, of the sacrificial system taking away the sins of the people, but the final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist called him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, being born in the same place where lambs that were going to be used as temple sacrifices were born makes perfect sense for Jesus to have been taken care of in the same way. Now, there's one other connection that I don't, I don't know what to make of, and I don't know how to, how to connect the dots to this, but it's really kind of fascinating to think about. The swaddling claws, the claws that were used to, to wrap the lambs and to make sure that they were protected and cared for as they were prepared for sacrifice, 
the cloth came from priestly garments. So the priests would serve their turn in the temple duties and, and the, the attire that they wore, the robes we could say that they wore, were then discarded after they finished their priestly service. And the robes were not used again. They were torn into strips of cloth that were used at Migdaletter to wrap the lambs to make them ready for sacrifice. So they came from the priests to the watchtower of the flock, where they were then used to keep the lambs warm and ready for sacrifice. Now, make another connection. Last week we talked about, and you can read in Luke chapter 1, if you don't remember this, that when Mary was visited by the angel, and when the angel said to her that she would become the mother of Jesus, she made a trip to Elizabeth's house. She needed to go find out what was going on, and the words of the angel pointed her in that direction, so she went. Very clear from Elizabeth's reaction, from Mary's reaction, that she was pregnant when she went to visit Elizabeth because the Holy Spirit was giving birth to this child, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And she spent a little time with Elizabeth. Well, we also know that six months earlier, Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, had finished his priestly duties at the temple and had returned home. And he was there with Elizabeth in June previous to that. Now, it's it's really intriguing to wonder. And, and I don't know. I mean, I wish I knew for sure. Some of these things we won't find out until we get to heaven and, and find that, those things out. But it's really intriguing to wonder. Because Elizabeth and Mary knew what God was up to with the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus, might Elizabeth have taken those priestly garments that Zechariah had worn during his temple service, and might it have been her responsibility to then tear them into strips of cloths that would be used as swaddling cloths, and might she, recognizing the connection that Mary was going to give birth to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, might she have given those swaddling cloths to Mary so that she would have them when Jesus was born? Now, I don't know if that's the case or not. Uh, it's, it's hard to know that. I don't know if there's any way we would ever know that short of God telling us one day. But we do know that Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloths, and they would have been the cloths that came from the priests who completed their temple service. We don't know if it was Zechariah. That's, that's, the, um, that's, that's the, the mysterious part of that. But it is kind of fascinating to think about, because there are some connections, and, and wouldn't it be amazing if that was what actually happened? So you see, there's a lot of this kind of evidence that is very concrete evidence that points to the watchtower of the flock being that, what we usually call stable, where Jesus was born. Now, some people are going to say, so, well, this is all very interesting, but what's really important? Well, what's really important is the Messiah came. And what's important about the details is that God didn't want us to miss it, that it was Jesus. He didn't want us to make a mistake. He wanted us to know, this is the one that I sent. And so he's given us all these layers of, of evidence to point us in the right direction so we don't miss the coming of Jesus. And that's, that's, that's the significant part. It's not so significant whether we celebrate the birth of Jesus in a certain month or on a certain date. It's important that we recognize that Jesus was born and God came into our world and lived among us. That's important. It's not 
vital that we know exactly where this took place. At least it doesn't seem to be at this point. But it is important for us to, to examine that and to understand it because the prophets pointed to some of these specific things. So it had to have been in this region. And when you read Micah chapter 4, verse 8, it's amazing that that Migdal Eder keeps cropping up there. When you go to the Targum and you hear the, the paraphrase about Jacob being there at the Tower of Eder, and that's the same place that King Messiah will be revealed, that's pretty interesting. That's pretty intriguing stuff. What's going on here? Uh, again, it's not, by my understanding of it, exact proof, but it's real intriguing. Now, why is all this important? Well, we're trust, trying to get at the truth of the biblical story. We're trying to keep the sacred story straight. Now, I know we have our nativity scenes and all of that, where we have the shepherds there and the kings there and Mary and Joseph and the baby and all that. And all that's great. And we should have those. And some of those settings are just fabulous. I wouldn't take a thing away from them, and I wouldn't discourage us using them, because we understand well enough how to condense a story and make it meaningful in one snapshot, and that's what that does for us. But here's what we need to be careful about as followers of Jesus. We live in an age surrounded by, we could say dominated by narratives, where people get an idea and they tell us a story. And many of us are conscious of that and concerned that they're not telling us the truth. They're telling us what they want us to believe, not what is true. So as Christians, we need to be willing and able to sort out the evidence that God gives us so we can tell the difference between a story someone tells us and the truth. So the story of the coming of Jesus is not violated by looking a little further into it and saying, wow, is it possible? wow, it's quite intriguing. He may have been born there at Migdal Eder. He may have been wrapped in swaddling cloths that came from Zechariah's robes after he finished his priestly duties. All of that just helps us focus in on, narrow in on, grasp the story of the coming of Jesus. In the same way that these days, we have to be careful that people don't point us in one direction because they're giving us a narrative instead of pointing us in the right direction because they're telling us the truth. So we're willing and able to look at all aspects of this story because we care about the truth. Yes, it might change my conception, and I will never again be able to think of that picture that I saw and that I experienced of the birthplace of Jesus as the place. It just doesn't add up. It just doesn't ring accurate with the evidence that we have from the Bible. But I have a richer understanding of that and it doesn't take anything away from anything that I've heard, but I have a richer understanding that, that the Messiah would be born in the watchtower of the flock, where the lambs that were destined for temple sacrifice were born, because Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And in so many ways, God is helping us understand what's going on and what he was doing so that we don't miss it so that we don't misunderstand, but we deepen our understanding. And isn't it remarkable that God, in His brilliance, would take this to this kind of level? And isn't it remarkable that God would say to us that He sent Jesus to forgive us our sins, to die in our place, so that we could be set free from sin and evil? You weren't intended to live away from God. You were intended to be made right with God. 
and he invites you to trust him. That's why we talk about trust being absolute confidence or faith being absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I want you to, to embrace Jesus as the perfect sacrifice and to do it now, to put your confidence in him and to trust him enough to follow in the way he leads. See, that's the importance of the story of Jesus coming. And that's why it's so fascinating to me that God gives us all these layers of meaning so that we don't miss it because he wants us to follow him. He wants us to know the truth. He doesn't want us to be caught up in a narrative that makes us feel good and makes us seem like it's what we want to do. No, no, he wants us to follow the Lamb of God so that we can be delivered from our sins, we can be forgiven, and we can one day dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So this Christmas, let these insights deepen and strengthen your understanding. Don't be, dis don't be dismayed that they're different just think about the graciousness of God to help us keep the sacred story straight and even to deepen our understanding of it as we delve into some of these things. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this has been Faith Is, where we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God and we can trust Him. Let's talk again next week.